uh, take your Bibles and turn them to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, if you would prefer to hear the message translated into Spanish. Brother John, wave your hand at us there. Brother John, all right. Está lavando su mano, okay? You can follow him to the translation room right next to the auditorium, and he can help you with that. Si quieres escuchar el mensaje traducido en español, sigue hermano John, al cuarto, alrededor del auditorio, puede traducir el mensaje en español. Gracias por tu asistencia en nuestra iglesia hoy. Ephesians chapter number 6. And we're going to begin a new series of sermons this morning that will last for probably a good month and a half. We're going to be looking at the armor of God, all right? And so, uh, let's see. If you have found Ephesians 6 and verse 10, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able to, Ephesians 6, verse 10 through verse number 17, we'll read responsibly. I'll read the even-numbered verses alone, and together as a church, we'll read the odd-numbered verses together, all right? The Bible says, beginning in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Together, verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against flesh, or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, we, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the devil, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The title of the sermon this morning is this, simply the belt of truth. The belt of truth. We'll be looking at this sermon both this morning and this afternoon. And I'll conclude the message this afternoon. But I believe there are some valuable things that we can look at topically about this topic of truth. And we want to make sure that we're in line with truth. Sometimes truth is hard. Sometimes truth hurts. But at the end of the day, Jesus said the truth will make you free. And that's what we want is freedom through Christ. Amen? Let's pray this morning. Lord, what a great time we've already had here today. Many folks put a lot of effort and energy into getting up and getting dressed and, uh, Lord, putting on the old garb. And, uh, Lord, um, beyond the festivities of today, Lord, it's a waste of time if we don't get something from the Bible. At the end of the day, that's the highest priority, is that you work in our hearts and, Lord, that we leave here altered and changed and we're made better into your likeness. And so, Lord, thank you for bringing us together. There's never been this crowd ever assembled together at once. Lord, you put us together for a reason. And, Lord, uh, there's something here for all of us. So help us to get that and leave here more like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. There's an old professor emeritus um, named Dr. Clarence Bass. And he tells the story that early in his uh, preaching ministry, he preached at a church in Los Angeles. And uh, he brought the Sunday morning uh, sermon and felt that he had done a great job. And at the end of the message, he's standing by the door. He's greeting people on their way out of the auditorium. And he's just receiving so many compliments from the crowd as they left about how much they appreciated his message. Well, a little old man creaked over, uh, uh, came through the line with a cane, and 
he didn't even make eye contact with the preacher. He just shouted out real loud, You preach too long! And, you know, walked on by and the preacher kind of laughed a little bit and thought that was, you know, that was funny, but wasn't offended because of all the other nice compliments he had gotten. And, and uh, lo and behold, the line is working through and, and uh, all of a sudden the old man is back in line again and this time he, he said, You didn't preach loud enough! And he thought, well, this guy's coming through the line a second time. He's, he's getting me another. He's getting me again. And, uh, you know, odd. And lo and behold, the guy comes through the line the third time. And he, 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 he barks out. Uh, he says, you use too many big words. And, uh, you know, this young preacher, brand new to the pulpit ministry, and, you know, unpolished in a lot of ways. He put a lot of time into his message. And he, uh, it was too much for him. You know, starting to get to him, rattling his cage. So he went to a deacon, an older deacon in the church, and he said, he pointed to the guy, he said, what, what's up with this guy? And the deacon just looked at him and laughed. He said, oh, don't worry about him. He just walks around repeating what everyone else says. <laughs> I, w- I wonder what you all really say about me behind my back. Amen. <laughs> Sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? Um, Amen, amen. Thank you, Mercedes. Children are very good at doing the exact same thing. Um, If you've ever had small children at home, they will repeat things that you've said at home to all the wrong people. Right? I used to run a junior church uh, back in Maryland. I was ran a large junior church. It'd be times there'd be 100 kids in my junior church. and uh, I quit taking prayer requests. Here's why I quit taking prayer requests. Because children raise their hand and say, would you pray for my mommy and daddy? They fought all the way to church this morning. And, um, you know, uh, my dad's got a temper problem. Would you? And I just quit taking prayer requests. Amen. Uh, children are too honest sometimes. In today's uh, message, what we're looking at today in Ephesians We're going to begin by examining the first part of the armor of God mentioned in Ephesians 6. That is the belt of truth. Now, why is the armor of God so important for us to put that on and wear that? Well, we know that Satan hates God. He hates the Christian. And Ephesians 6 tells us that he aims his wiles at us. I heard a young Christian who had been asked to read a passage of Scripture in a Sunday school class, and uh, he, he opened up to Ephesians 6, and he, he said to watch out for the willies of the devil. The willies of the devil. That word is not willies, it's wiles. Now, what are the wiles? Those are the fiery darts of the devil. The reality is, Ephesians 6, 10, and 11 tell us that we are in a war that cannot be seen with our eyes or heard of with our ears. If uh, there were bombs going off overhead and gunshots being fired around the church building, we would all be in terror and in fear. Uh, We would all be hiding under the chairs or running for cover. Uh, Why? Because we'd be able to see and hear with our senses the war that would be going on around us. But the truth is, while we don't see and hear a physical war, there's ever much a spiritual war going on over our heads 
right now, right here, right now. Satan is at war. The evil, uh, powers of evil are at war with the powers of good. And uh, Satan is working hard to contaminate truth in my heart and life and con- contaminate truth in your heart and your life. He's doing his very best to take you down. That's why uh, Paul told the church of Ephesus, he said, every day you get up, you need to put on your spiritual armor and prepare to go to spiritual war. Why? Because the Christian is at war day in and day out. And the moment you take a day off from the spiritual war, Satan is waiting right there with his fiery dart, his fiery ammunition to take a shot at you and pull you down. And you know what? Satan is subtle. Satan is sly. He's stealthy. He'll do it a little bit at a time. And you'll wake up one morning and you'll wonder, how did I get to where I am? I used to be in love with God. I used to walk with God. I used to read my Bible and pray. I used to be faithful to church. I used to go to all three church services the church offered. I used to be passionate about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with anyone and everyone that listened. And you turn around and you look at where you're at and you say, how did I get to where I am? And the truth is Satan works a little bit at a time. A little bit at a time. Those fiery darts get in there and get you, and you knock it off, and you think, no big deal, no big deal, but a little bit at a time, he takes you down. Christian, it is important that each morning when you get up, you read your Bible and you pray, you put on your spiritual armor and you protect yourself. Just as a soldier makes sure he has all of his equipment before he goes to war, just as a medieval soldier would have put on all of the equipment he had to put on before he got on his horse and went out to war, we are to put on the armor of God to make sure that we are ready each and every day. Today we're going to focus in on that phrase there. Go back with me to Ephesians 6 and look with me there at verse number 14. It says, Stand therefore having your loins girt about with the truth. Notice that first word, stand. Our theme this year is stand for Jesus. The reality is if you stand without your spiritual armor on, you won't be standing very long. And if we're going to stand for the Lord, we need to make sure we're equipped and ready to do so. So we stand having our loins, our waist girt about wrapped up with truth, having on the belt of truth. We're going to look at this morning and this afternoon this idea of our loins being girded about with truth. I believe that Satan has worked hard to take the truth of the Word of God and poison it with error. I mentioned in my life group this morning that Satan has been questioning the Word of God all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve, He said, Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan came along and he put a giant question mark where God had put a period. He said, Hath God said, Thou shalt not eat? Are you sure that that's what God said? God, or Satan has been questioning God's Word all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the first man and the first woman. Satan loves to question truth. Satan loves to mix in error with truth. Satan loves to contaminate the Christian and the world in this area of truth. So I have four areas, and we're going to spend a lot more time looking at these four areas this afternoon. But by way of introduction this morning, let me give them to you. I believe that these are the order of priority for Satan when it comes to poisoning truth. Write these four words down there on the bottom of your outline. Notice, he works to poison the truth of salvation. He works to poison the truth of salvation. The number one doctrine that is under attack in our churches across this country is the doctrine of salvation. Is salvation a gift from God received with childlike faith? Or is salvation uh, something you earn by being a good person in attending church? 
and being baptized. You see, Satan has worked to call the gospel, the salvation, into question. It couldn't be made any more clear in Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He hath saved us. It couldn't be any more clear than Ephesians 2.8.9, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It couldn't be any more clear than Matthew 18, where Jesus says that you must come unto me like one of these children with the faith of a child. Couldn't be any more clear than John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, where it says, He that believeth not is condemned, but he that believeth, or rather, he that believeth is, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. It could not be any more clear than God has made it. Salvation is a gift given to us by faith. Romans 6.23 says it is the gift of God. It is eternal life purchased by or through Jesus Christ our Lord. But Satan works to question the truth of salvation. If he can't get you with salvation, then he works to question uh, the truth of separation. Separation. Second Corinthians makes it clear that we're to come out from among them and be separate. When Egypt, rather, when the Israelites left Egypt, they crossed through the Red Sea. They were to never return to Egypt again. When the Christian gets saved, they are to leave the world behind and they are to live a life that is holy and sanctified. I just want to say that in our culture today, our church culture today in America, there are a bunch of mega churches, and I'm not against a mega church. I hope one day we are one. That's my intent is for White Oak Baptist Church to grow and be strong. But I'm going to tell you what people are looking for today. They're looking to go to a church where they can sit on a pew and be told that the lifestyle they're living is fine as long as they come to church and sit there and they're told you can make it one more week and you just go be a good person while their life is not changed one iota from the world around them. I just want to say that in the 21st century, holiness is still a thing to God. Living separate from the world is still a thing from God. You get saved, the next lie Satan will tell you is, well, you can, you can be saved, but you can still live like the world. You can still act like the world and talk like the world and smell like the world and live like the world and watch the TV programming of the world. God has called us to be separate. Satan works to poison that truth. The next thing Satan looks to poison is the truth of sanctification. If, if Satan loses you to salvation, and then he loses you to separation, what he'll tell you is, okay, now you're, act, now you're looking the part, right? You're all cleaned up, but don't worry about living like the Lord. Don't worry about looking like the Lord. You know what a Pharisee is? A Pharisee is someone who is separated from the world, but does not walk with God. You look at the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 25, or 23 rather, he said, you all tithe, on mint. You strain at a gnat, yet you swallow a camel. What does that mean? He said, you've got your little strainer out, and you're making sure the gnats don't get in your drink, so your drink is great, while you're eating the camel of sin in your life. Privately, you're filled with sin on the inside, while the outside is cleaned up and looks great. There are a whole lot of Christians. They know how to they know how to look like and be separate from the world on the outside. Their hands are clean, James 4 teaches us, but their heart is filthy. You know, the truth is, you don't know what's in my heart, and I don't know what's in your heart, but the Lord knows what's in all of our hearts. To be sanctified is not meaning that you are better than anyone. It just means that you're separate from the world, and you're walking with God and fulfilling the purpose of His life. The fourth 
truth that Satan seeks to poison is the truth of soul winning. I'm going to talk about this one a little bit more later. But uh, listen, can I just say ultimately God's goal for you is to tell the world about how to be saved? That's why he left you here. I, I, uh, I was asked this question years ago. Why did God not just take us to heaven right after we got saved? Wouldn't that have been easy, right? Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Come into my heart. Take my sin away. My faith is in you and in you alone to go to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Boom! Up you go to heaven. Wouldn't that have been great? Healed from sin? I mean, as long as your family gets to go with you, amen? Healed from sin and, and all the... The, uh, all of the sin-sick, sin-cursed world that there is here today and get to be in the presence of Jesus in a heaven that's just perfect in every way and you know, get to move into your mansion right off the bat, I mean, that would have been fantastic. Why did, why did God leave us here? Did He leave us here so we could make money? Did He leave us here so we could have nice things? I'm not against making money and having nice things. Did He leave us here so you know, we could uh, sit on the pew and... Uh, gripe about the pastor leave, using too big of words and preaching too uh, loud and too long? Uh, no, he, he left us here so we would tell other people about how to go to heaven. The greatest joy I have is standing up and telling uh, from the pulpit telling other people about how to be saved. Last week seeing 8, 9, 10, 11 people raise their hands saying, Pastor, I prayed and put my faith in Jesus with you to be saved. Boy, I was, I was on the, uh, walking on the clouds uh, all the rest of the day and, and into much of this week, uh, standing at a door and, or, or, or standing on a sidewalk and seeing someone turn from their sin and trust Christ as their Savior, there is no greater thing. And by the way, there is nothing more important than that. I'm just going to use basic, simple logic here. What if humanity quit having babies? What would happen? You all know that, right? Simple. In fact, uh, statistics say that in order for a culture to maintain its culture over the long, long period of time, then uh, uh, each couple needs to average 2.2 babies apiece. Now, what happens when churches quit reproducing Christians? Now, I, I'm looking around in the 21st century. I'm looking around in 2021, and I'm looking at the church landscape. And you know what? I'm reading statistics that talk about how far off churches have fallen in the last 30 years. There are way more people today at a shopping mall and a Walmart and Target than they are in a church. There are more people today at work than there are at church. There are a whole lot of people today that are just sitting at home, taking it easy, cutting their lawn, right, or whatever they're doing, going shopping, getting their groceries in order, going to a brunch where they're just really just getting drunk. I know what goes on in brunches in New England, amen? It's not about the eggs. It's not about the quiche. We know what's really going on. Why have churches, why has church attendance fallen off? I remember as a boy, I'd turn on my TV at home and we had uh, rabbit ears, right? How many are old enough to remember rabbit ears on your TV? How many are old enough to remember back when you put the antenna on the roof, okay? I'm not old enough for that. I'm putting my hand down. Um, we had rabbit ears, so we had like five channels and they were good when it was... Uh, as long as it wasn't cloudy and stormy outside, all right? And then you get up and you hold them a certain way. I would always get my little brother James to stand there with his finger on the tip, you know, for like 30 minutes so I could watch my show and bribe him with candy, you know? And we had a good time with that kind of stuff. But um, I'd turn on the TV, and for like four hours on this one channel, it was Annie Griffith Marathon. 
How many remember the Andy Griffith show? All right. And you know what they did in the Andy Griffith show? They went to church. You know why that was in the TV show? Because that was what was popular in the culture. The 1940s and 50s, people went to church. You'd be hard-pressed to find any TV show today that is secular where people are going to church where it's not condemned and made fun of. What has happened to us? I'm going to tell you what's happened to us. Satan has poisoned the truth about Christians sharing their faith. And because we're not reproducing other Christians, we don't need church anymore, do we, to hold all the people. You see what Satan's done to us? He, he's worked to attack soul winning, because if he can attack soul winning, and when I mean soul winning, if you're new to that term, telling other, winning people's souls to Christ, right? What has he done? If he, can win, if he can convince Christians not to share their faith, well, then ultimately people are not going to get saved. I'd like for us this morning to look closely at four thoughts about this truth from the Word of God wearing the belt of truth. Let's jump in this morning. If you're visiting with us today and you're unfamiliar with our services, on the back of that bulletin we hope you received on the way in is a fill-in-the-blank outline. We encourage you to take notes as we go. Number one, number one, notice the pilgrimage to discover truth. The pilgrimage to discover truth. Look at John chapter number 18 with me. Turn over to John chapter number 18. Much of the rest of the message will be topical this morning. Look at John chapter number 18, and look at verse number 33. Here Jesus has been arrested, and he's being um, brought before the Roman uh, uh, governor Pilate. Pilate has to sign off on the crucifixion of Jesus in order for it to take place. He is the ultimate authority in that region to sign off on executions. And the Jews have found Jesus guilty. Now they just need Pilate to find Jesus guilty. Look at verse 33. Jesus and Pilate here are alone, and Pilate is trying Jesus. The Bible says in 33, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell this of, of me? Tell, this, tell it thee of me. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would, uh, then would my servants fight uh, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from thence. Pilate therefore said to him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest, I am a king. To the end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Uh, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Look at what Pilate says to Jesus in verse 38. Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? Pilate is on a journey, a pilgrimage to discover truth. He says, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him, I find in Jesus no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? They then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barnabas. Now, Barnabas was a robber. Barabbas, rather. Barabbas was a barber, a, a robber. Here you find a governmental leader who was put in a very difficult spot. He was under heavy political pressure from his constituents to order a man to die in whom they hated, but Pilate felt was innocent. In the process of the conversation between Pilate and Christ, 
we find that Pilate is in search for truth. Truth. You know, there is something inside of all humanity that desires to get to the bottom of truth in the depths of, of their heart. For this reason, the devil has attacked even the concept that there is such a thing as absolute truth altogether. In fact, if you go to many institutes of higher learning, the idea of absolute truth is mocked at and made fun of and put down. But this has been going on for decades. A survey conducted back in the 1990s, interviewees were asked, do you agree strongly, agree somewhat, disagree somewhat, or disagree strongly with the following statement? Here's the statement, okay? There is no such thing as absolute truth. That's an absolute statement that there is no absolute truth. I don't know if anybody caught that. There is no such thing, they're saying with an absoluteness there, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Now, the the statistics were staggering. Again, this was 30 years ago. Only 28% of the respondents expressed strong belief in absolute truth. More surprisingly, those who self-identified themselves as Christians, only 23% of them uh, came out and said they strongly agree with this idea of absolute truth. The story is told of a professor at a state-run college who held up a a jar of beans and asked the students to give their predictions of how many beans were in the jar. He scribbled down their answers on the chalkboard or marker board, and then he received uh, everyone's answers. He wrote their names down, received their answers, put the answer down by their names, and then he turned around and asked everyone what their favorite song was. Y'all with me this morning? Names on the marker board. Uh, How many beans are in the jar? He writes that down. Then he goes back around the class. Tell me what your favorite song is. And he writes the songs down next to their name and the bean count. All right? Uh, He's doing, um, uh, he's trying to bring out a, a, a thought here with the class. So they open up the jar. They count all the beans. And he asks the class who won. And so they looked up on the board to see who was closest and they identified that student as the winner. He then said, okay, who won the contest on who, who, had the, who had the right song? Who picked the song that is the best song? Who was closest there? And the students began to say, well, you can't, you can't that, that's left up to taste and that's left up to opinion and how can you really know uh, who is right there? Then he turned and he asked the class, religion, God, is it more like the bean count or is it more like choosing a song? And the class came back and said, the consensus was, it's more like picking a song. You see what Satan has done to faith? He has turned into something that is simply a preference and not something that is absolute truth. I just want to say here unashamedly that the Bible is God's holy and perfect Word and that every word of it is true. It is the answer for life. I believe there is a real heaven and a real hell. I believe those that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and make Him uh, their way, make Jesus their truth, make Jesus their life, will one day spend eternity in a real place, a material place called heaven, a place that exists right now. They will spend eternity in heaven. One day a new heaven and new earth will descend. I get all that. And then those who don't uh, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will spend eternity in a lake of fire. That is absolute truth that God has laid out for us. Why? Because Jesus is truth. He is truth. 
There is something deep down in the heart of all of us that wants to get to the bottom of truth. Below all of the propaganda and lies and opinions that we uh, have, uh, uh, there is a desire to know truth and to find it. And we cram things into what I'll call the God hole. There is in our heart the God hole. And we put uh, uh, entertainment and we put alcohol or drugs or uh, uh, relationships or money or uh, career. We put all these things in our life thinking that that will make us happy only to find there's still an emptiness inside an emptiness that only the truth can satisfy. In a 60 Minutes interview, um, former New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady told CBS, he said, I'm making more money now playing football than I thought I'd ever make. This is after he'd won his third Super Bowl. He continued, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel like there's something greater out there for me? He said, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. The interviewer said, well, what's the answer? Mr. Brady's response was, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being the quarterback for this team. But at the same time, there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Mr. Brady had already signed a $60 million contract and had won three Super Bowls at that point, but, was still, but still was empty on the inside. Why? Because at least at that time in his life, he had not discovered the wonderful fact that truth makes you free. You see, many people deny the idea of absolute truth. Other people know that there is absolute truth, but they've yet to discover it. Number one, the pilgrimage to discover truth. Number two, notice the person who defies, defines truth. The person who defines truth. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter number one. You were in John 18 a moment ago. Turn back to the beginning of John. John chapter one, and look with me at verse number 14. The beginning of John 1, 1, 1, verses 1 through 3, tells us that the Word was made, uh, rather, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you'll see there that in verse number 1, uh, that the letter W in that word, Word, is capitalized. That's a proper noun, signifying a person. Jesus is the Word. In fact, verse 14 is going to talk about the incarnation or the birth of, of Christ, Jesus being robed in flesh. Look at 14. And the Word, Jesus, the Word was made flesh, speaking of the nativity, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Look here, full of grace. What's that last two words? And truth. Jesus is truth. Turn over to, a look, rather look down at verse number 17. Verse number 17, the Bible says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Truth came by Jesus Christ. Turn over to John chapter 8 and verse number 31. John chapter 8 and verse number 31. The person who defines truth. Uh, the two greatest characteristics that define Jesus were grace and truth. He brought grace and truth into the world on top of the law of Moses. Look at verse 31 of John 8. The Bible says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Look here, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Turn to John 14 and verse 6. 
John 14, Jesus is comforting His disciples. He's on His way to be crucified. He tells them uh, that He's going to another place to make, uh, uh, to, to make something for them, to prepare a place for them, and, and uh, that He's on His way out. And Thomas says to Him, uh, how can we know the way? Uh, uh, how can we know where you're going? And look at what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, unto Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's the exclusivity into heaven. The door is Jesus. The way is Jesus. He is the truth. One more. Turn to John 17 and look at verse 17. John 17 and look at verse 17 here. Jesus is praying to the Father. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood. His disciples are asleep just a few feet behind him. He is praying a very, very uh, stress-filled, anxiety-filled prayer. Look at verse 17. Jesus says to his Father about his disciples, Sanctify them through thy truth. Look here. Thy word is truth. Here's a neat little uh, uh, Bible nugget for you. Jesus is the living word. The Bible is the written word. Amen? You say, well, which is truth? Is it the Bible or is it Jesus? The answer is yes. Amen? They're both the truth. They're both the truth. Because the Bible is the written, manifested form of Jesus. Jesus is the living word. We hold, uh, we hold in our hands the written word. Again, here we go back to the account of Pilate. Back in John 18. You don't have to turn back there. But that's where it is. A man who held great power... A man who had held great fame. As far as career success had gone, he had climbed the ladder and become the governor of this region of the Roman Empire. Yet, this man of great power and fame was still in bondage in the spiritual realm. Why? He had not been introduced to the truth. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Pilate asked the wrong question. He asked the question, what is truth? He should have asked the question, who is truth? Who is truth? Isn't it interesting that he had the answer standing right in front of him? What is truth? No, Pilate, the question is, who is truth? And he's standing right in front of you. My friend, the key to freedom is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ left heaven and He came to earth, wrapped Himself in flesh, robed Himself in flesh, was perfect in every way, lived a sinless life. At the age of 33, He was arrested by men who were religious, uh, but phonies. They arrested Him, they beat Him, they mocked Him, they spit on Him, they made fun of Him, they stripped Him naked, uh, they took a cow of night tails and beat Him uh, uh, bloody and laid furrows in His back with the whip. Uh, they uh, put a robe on His back and a reed in His hand and a crown of thorns on His head. They bowed down to Him, mocking Him, Hail, King of the Jews. They then stripped that off of Him uh, at the base of the cross. They nailed Him, His hands and His feet, to that piece of wood. And you know what? He could have stopped at any time He wanted, but He chose to let it happen. Why? Because sin has a price, and that price is death. I'm so glad that Jesus loved you and I so much that He was willing to go to the cross and die in my place. Sometimes I stop and I ask people, I say, do you know you're going to heaven? And they say, yes, I believe I am because I'm a good person. And I stop and I think to myself, and I even say this at some point to them, 
If you were so good, then why did Jesus have to come and die for you so brutally on a cross? The reality is, if I was the only human being to ever been born, and I had sinned, Jesus loves me so much, He would have come to this earth and found a way to suffer and die in my place. And that's how much He loves you. I want you to imagine there was someone who was undeserving of life. And they were on their way to death. And you took your only son and you allowed them to die in the place of that person who was so undeserving. And then that criminal, that crook, that lawbreaker looked at you and said, you're so narrow-minded. Couldn't have you come up with another way for me to be rescued? Well, why can't I find my own way? Oh, how offended you would be. You see, the God of all heaven and earth, the God who made you and formed you in your mother's womb, He loved you so much that He took Jesus out of heaven. And He who was rich became poor. So we that are poor could become rich. He took our sin and iniquity on His body. And He took His right standing with God, His righteousness, His right standing with God, and He laid it on us who believe. Can I just say this morning, there's only one sin that sends a person to hell. There's only one sin that is so grotesque in the eyes of God, that will condemn them to hell for eternity. It is not suicide. It is not pedophilia. It is not rape. It is not murder. There's only one sin that will send a soul to hell for all of eternity, and it is the sin of unbelief. If you deny that Jesus is your way to heaven and you don't turn to Him at some point in your life and accept what He did for you on the cross and accept that He is your Savior, then my friend, you are rejecting the gift of God. You are rejecting truth. And you are subjecting your soul to an eternity there in hell. And it is not cold. It is not narrow-minded. It is not unkind for God to reject someone who has rejected His gift. Pilate asked the question, what is truth? The answer is, Jesus Christ. He is truth. Why do I hold the Bible in such esteem, high esteem in my own life and heart? Why do I work hard to abide by its precepts and its principles and its commandments? Is it because I want to be a holier-than-thou person? Absolutely not. If I'm being honest this morning, I fail at obeying the Bible probably more than I keep it. I wish I was better at it. Why do I care so much about the Word of God? Why do I hold it in such high esteem? Because it is the written version of truth given to me and you, and it's meant to set us free. Number one, the pilgrimage to discover truth. Number two, the person who defines truth. Notice number three, the powers that defy truth. The powers that defy truth. Let us not forget why it is that we put on the armor of God. We do so because the devil and his evil empire are looking to tear down the walls of truth. Satan seeks to attack the individual. He seeks to attack 
families and the family unit. He seeks to attack the church home. He is attacking our country. He is attacking all of humanity. Turn over to John chapter 8 and look at verse number 44. Jesus here is speaking to the Pharisees and he's talking to them about their father, the devil. And he's looking right at the Pharisees. He's speaking to them. He says in verse 44 of the Pharisees, Ye are of your father, the devil. Look how the Lord Jesus describes the devil. And the lusts of your father, the devil, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. What was Satan's great error? He abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, when he, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. You tell a lie, you're participating in the kingdom of darkness. You're getting that from the father of all lies, the devil. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, two books to the right, Acts and Romans. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 18. We use the Bible at White Oak Baptist Church a lot because we believe the Bible is the truth. Amen? And you didn't come to hear a 37-year-old give his opinion about life. and You came to hear what the Word of God has to say. I sure hope so this morning. Look at Romans chapter 1 and look at verse number 18. With me this morning. Here we see a culture that is uh, in contamination and in condemnation. A culture that is crippled and crumbling because of their uh, covetousness and their sin. And a culture who's falling apart because Satan has sown in his lies and slowly crippled it and brought it to its knees. Look at verse 18. The Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Look here. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They have the truth, but they have subjected the truth. They have a reprioritized unrighteousness or sin above the truth. Look at verse 19. Because that, uh, that which... Let me, let me start again here. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. What does that mean? That means any of us can walk outside and look up at nature and know that where there is a creation, there has to be a Creator. L- listen to me here. I don't walk out into the, dr- into the parking lot here and see all of the cars and wonder where the bomb was that went off in a manufacturing building that put these cars together. Why do people walk outside and look up at a creation that is complex and perfect in every way and think, wow, there must have been a bomb that went off in space billions and trillions of years ago that made all this? Do you know that your DNA code is far more complicated than any book on planet Earth? But no one would be so crazy as to believe that a bomb would go off in a paper and ink company and create a book. Why do we believe a bomb in space created our our bodies and DNA? You see, what has happened is we've allowed lies to be sown into our truth and we've held the truth in unrighteousness. We have began to believe that the creation is greater than the Creator. And then we begin to deny that the Creator even exists. Look at verse 21. Oh, back, by the way, back up to verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. The fool hath said in his heart, the Bible tells us, there is no God. Look here, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Quickly here, I want to also add that I have met many people who claim to be atheists. 
I've had many conversations with atheists. Somewhere in the conversation along the way, I asked them this question. When did you become an atheist? Do you know that every one of them has had an answer for me? They know the moment, they know where they were, they know the circumstances that brought them to a point where they chose atheism. Why? Because the creation has printed on their heart that they were made by God. It's in all of our hearts. We all know it deep down inside. An atheist is nothing more than someone who's rebelling from the reality that God made them. Look at verse 21. Because that when they knew God, that's truth, they glorified Him not as God, that's ignoring the truth, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Look here, professing themselves to be wise, now they're worshiping themselves, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Look here, look here, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creation more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Look down at Romans chapter 2. Look at verse number 2. I got one baby that agrees with me. Amen? Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 2. The Bible says, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. What are such things? Look down at verse number 8. Romans chapter 2, look at verse number 8. But unto them that are contentious, look here, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. What are such things? Those that are obedient to unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Listen, they're obeying their own truth. A uh, famous uh, talk, uh, talk TV star, one of these people that you know, interview people and make folks feel good, I won't say her name, Amen. Her initials are O.W. You can figure it out. Um, she talked about having my truth. Your truth. You know what that is? That's unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. There is only one truth. And that is epitomized in the person of truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you can obey Satan's system, which is a, a, a bill of lies, or you can obey the Lord's system, who is truth. 1 Timothy 6.5 says, Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. They, their minds are perverse or twisted. Their minds are corrupt. They're destitute of truth. It says, Supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, he would say, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. I'm going to tell you this. I do not enjoy being wrong. Especially when I'm arguing with my wife. I hate being wrong when I'm arguing with my wife. Now, I wish I could stand up here and tell you that I have a perfect marriage and I never argue with my wife, but we argue, amen? And we argue more than we ought to, amen? Um, sometimes, not often, sometimes I'm wrong. 
That's right, she's not here. She's thousands of miles away in Peru, amen? She's watching online. Somebody's got YouTube pulled up right now. She's probably in the comment section, um, commenting away. Um, no, um, I don't like being wrong. But can I tell you that sometimes I'm wrong? Oftentimes I'm wrong. Setting all humor aside, I get so entrenched and dug in on something, and I'm, I'm just dogmatic even though I'm wrong. And I have to humble my heart and come back around and admit when I'm wrong. Now, um, it's in our nature to defend ourselves when we feel like our version of truth is under attack. And then it is our pride to continue defend to continue to defend ourselves, even when we know deep down inside we're wrong. But the best thing to do is to take down the defense and humble our heart and say, "I know that there is this war going on in this world against truth, and I have maybe fallen for some of those lies, and I'm not going to live with a perverse mind. I'm not going to live destitute of truth." I'm going to endure sound doctrine even if that truth hurts. Um, I heard of a dad who spanked his kids and he took a marker, a sharpie, and he wrote in capital letters across the paddle, truth. Truth, okay? Sometimes truth hurts, does it not? Sometimes truth hurts. But truth is meant to set you free. Another quick analogy I'll use, we're almost done with the message this morning, another quick analogy I'll use is truth is like a bright light. How many of you here have ever been asleep and had someone turn on a bright light in the room and wake you up with that light? It's horrible, isn't it? Absolutely horrible. I imagine being in boot camp. I, I didn't go through the military, but in boot camp, having a, a DI, a drill instructor, you're dead asleep at 3 a.m. and a bright flashlight right in your eyes. But, Sean, that never happens, does it? I bet that never happens. He, uh, he was military. Um, you know, when we have truth hit us, and we're living, in at least in a particular area, we're living in darkness, our flinch factor is to turn that light off. Get that out of here. Why? We've become acclimated to the darkness. We don't want light. Furthermore, light exposes some things, right? How many of you here ever went to check your kid's room, you told them to clean it, and then, you know, the fifth time later, the fifth version of the room is mostly clean, and then you go in with a flashlight and you start looking in corners. It's not so clean, is it? Sometimes that light comes into our heart and reveals things we don't like to see. My, my, my encouragement, my admonishment to you this morning is, if truth has hurt your feelings, don't let the facts get in the way. Don't let your feelings get in the way of facts. Amen? Get in line with truth because truth makes us free. Number one, the pilgrimage to discover truth. We're talking about putting on the belt of truth this morning. Number two, the person who defines truth. Number three, the powers that defy truth. Number four, notice here uh, the productivity that distinguishes truth. The productivity that distinguishes truth. Now, we're going to fill in the letter A and B this afternoon in the afternoon service, but look back with me at our text verse about the armor of God. Look back at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 14. Turn back there with me if you would. Uh, we want to look at verse number 14 here. When we live in truth, we become productive for the kingdom of heaven. Verse 14. The Bible says, I'll begin reading, Stand therefore, having your loins 
girt about with truth. As I began to study this verse in detail, I made a stunning discovery. The word loins does not just refer to one's waist. All right, I'll, be, I'll be careful here because I know we may have a younger audience in some cases listening, but I want to make sure I get this truth out here. The word for loins in the original language, the Greek word, uh, refers to more than just our waist. It refers to those private, the private areas of one bo- one's body. It refers to those areas used in procreation. Now that's interesting. When Paul, under the inspiration of God, was ascribing concepts of Christianity to various parts of a suit of armor, he chose to ascribe truth for the, product, for the protection of the reproductive organs. Satan's goal is to compromise truth in our hearts and minds. He wants Christians to be content with a level of Christianity that does not include spiritual procreation. If he can convince you that maintaining a devotional life, having a good family, and being faithful to church sums up God's plan for your life, then he has succeeded at compromising truth inside of you. Satan aims his fiercest warfare at the Christian who is converting sons of men into sons of God. He looks to attack your truth. By doing this, he hopes to stop your productivity for the Lord. Once the devil was walking along with one of his cohorts, they saw a man ahead of them picking up something shiny. What did he find, asked the cohort. The devil maniacally grinned and said he found a piece of the truth. Well, doesn't that bother you that he found a piece of the truth, asked the cohort? No, said the devil, I will see to it that he turns it into a religion to deceive men. Remember, the enemy of the best is not usually the worst, but rather the good. If Satan can get you to be a good Christian, but not a godly Christian, and not a soul-winning Christian, then he has won the battle in your heart. If Satan can take down your truth, then he can limit your effectiveness in, your, in the grand scheme of eternity for God. As stated in the introduction, uh, Satan looks to compromise mankind in the following four areas. Salvation from hell, separation from sinful living, sanctification to godly living, and the soul, winning the souls of lost man. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you've never turned to Him in belief to be saved, my friend, quit asking what is truth and turn to the person who is truth and believe in Him for salvation. If you've been saved here, which would be the majority of you this morning, I want to ask you this. Are you separated from worldly living? Are you sanctified to godly living? And are you soul winning? Are you winning the lost souls of mankind? for God in eternity? Is there a burden in your heart to see the lost saved? Boy, this question this morning is, are your loins girt about with truth or has Satan gotten you with error? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around. How many here this morning would say, Pastor, maybe Satan has deceived me in an area here or there, but one thing is for certain, my salvation is settled. I know I'm going to heaven. I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I have believed in Him and Him alone. 
as my way to heaven. If that's your testimony, would you slip up your hand right where you are? I know I'm going to heaven. My faith has been placed in Jesus. I'm certain of that. Boy, many hands, many hands. I didn't see every hand, but I saw most hands. And if you didn't raise your hand this morning, let me thank you for your honesty. You're being honest with God and honest with yourself. And that's a great starting place. Is there one here this morning or maybe several here this morning that would say, Pastor, truth be told, if I were to die, I don't know that I would go to heaven. If I were to die, I don't know that I have believed in Jesus. Pastor Lejeune, I'm just not sure about that. If that's you this morning, I want to pray for you. Maybe you know you haven't believed in Jesus. Maybe you're uncertain that you haven't believed in Jesus. But either way, boy, I want to pray for you. With every other head bowed and every other eye closed, just me and you, if that's you, would you slip up your hand right where you are? I don't know I'm going to heaven. Would you please pray for me? Is there one? I see one hand. I see another hand. Is there anyone else here that would join them and say, I'm just not sure where I'm going to go when I die? I see another hand. I want to make sure we give the Spirit of God time to work. You're not certain you're going to go to heaven when you die. Please, please, please don't leave the service this morning without getting that settled. It is really very simple. You must believe in Jesus for salvation. To those of you that raise your hand, would you look up here at me just for a moment? Would you look up here at me just for a moment? Thank you. Everyone else, keep your heads bowed and eyes closed, please. I'd like to help you to put your faith and trust in Christ to save you. It's really simple. When I was a small boy with childlike faith, I turned to Jesus and I just believed in him. I said, Lord, I'm a sinner and I know you died on the cross for my sins and I believe in you. And I would like to help you do the same thing right where you're at. Under the, under the, un, under the uh, just, just a whisper, right under your, your voice there in your heart. So with your head bowed and eyes closed, if you would just repeat this prayer for me in your heart, just say this prayer. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm so thankful that you came and died on the cross for me. You paid the penalty for my sin. I believe you rose again from the dead. You're alive forevermore. My faith is in you and in you alone to save me. Take me to heaven when I die. In Jesus' name. If you keep, just continue with their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer... Right where you are, would you just signify that by just raising your hand? I prayed that prayer. I believed in Jesus. I see several hands, several that didn't even raise their hand the first time. I rejoice with you in that decision to believe in Jesus. The Bible says you've become a child of God. Romans 8 says you were adopted into his family. You are on your way to heaven. There's nothing that can ever be done to undo that. How many of you here this morning that have already been saved, you would say this morning, somewhere in my life, my loins have not been protected with truth. Satan has mixed error in my thinking. And pastor, pray for me that God will help me to put on the belt of truth and wear it every day. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Pastor, pray for me. Satan has deceived me. There's some areas in my life where I'm not living like I ought to. I'm not doing all that I ought to do. Please pray for me, pastor. I see your hands. Thank you so much. How many here this morning would also say, Pastor, I'm going through some hardships in my life today going through some difficult things. Pray for me that God would help me through these hardships. If that's you, would you hold up your hand? Going through some hardships. I just need the prayer of a pastor. Keep them up so I can see who has their hands raised, please. I can pray for you this week. Amen. Lord, 
We do pray that during this time of invitation, Christians would come down to this old-fashioned altar on this old-fashioned Sunday. They would bend an old-fashioned knee and they would, Lord, get their heart right with you. Lord God, please help us. Help us to find truth and be set free by it. Help us not to argue with you or dig our heels in with you. Lord, help us to have a humble heart. And Lord, may we live by truth in Jesus' name.